Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. The five films nominated for international feature at this year's Oscars wrangle with some tough ideas and issues. There's the brutality of war, the human cost of fascism, animal cruelty, neglectful parenting, and the prison of masculinity. Yet all of these films find room to offer glimmers of hope, some more than others. I'm Ayesha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're bringing you a guide to this year's Oscar-nominated international features on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Third Love. Third Love makes solutions for every bra problem. Give yourself more lift, smoothing, and get straps that stay put. Every style's wear-tested on real women, made from premium materials, with a virtual fitting room to help you find your perfect fit. Comfort and support are guaranteed. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. It's just the two of us today, so let's get right into it. You know, Aisha, when we were divvying up categories between the four of us, I went and snaked international features early, because I always thought, you know, the documentaries, historically, they're bummers. (laughs) Did we dodge a bullet? Uh, clearly not, because, man, are the, <laughs> these bummers, too. <laughs> well, remains to be seen. Let's put it that way. First up is Poland's entry. EO is a film told from the point of view of a donkey who gets rescued from his life in a rundown circus and then makes his way through Poland and Italy, having a series of adventures that expose him to the best and the worst, but mostly the worst, of humanity. It's directed by Jerza Skomolowski, and it's streaming on the Criterion channel and available to rent on various platforms. Aisha, what would you think? Oh, I loved this movie. <laughs> I was not necessarily expecting to, but it tells a very obvious point these days, which is that, you know, the treatment of animals is has been terrible and we need to do better about that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's just something so lovely about this film. And while there is a lot of doom and gloom in many ways and just kind of reveling in the terrible things that happen to this donkey, there's also really great quiet moments and lovely moments. There's a moment early on in the film where the first person we see who kind of has ownership over the donkey, uh, she works with him in the circus. She finds him again after losing him and then brings him this carrot muffin for his birthday. (laughs) And then like she has to go away again very quickly. And then he's braying as she leaves and the braying just like, it got me. Okay. It got me right here. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, I, I love this movie. So I wasn't really into it. I, I think it's really beautiful. And it's also short, too, which is a big point in its favor in my book. Yeah, totally. I, look, I wasn't prepared. I mean, you, yeah, there are quiet moments, but I was not prepared for how hard this film goes. I mean, yeah. do not trust the poster, which has the big head of the donkey kind of leaning into frame from the lower right corner, which I always think of as like the kangaroo jack angle, which, you know, <laughs> semiotically, yes. that means whimsy is in store. There is no whimsy here. There is pain. There is neglect. There are a bunch of drunken louts being casually cruel to this guy. There is Isabelle Hubert randomly, um, fabulously, (laughs) 
but randomly. And uh, this is inspired by the 1966 Robert Bresson film called Awazard Balthazar, which is also about a donkey who has adventures, but that's Bresson. So the donkey is a Christ figure. So that donkey suffers, and EO gets off lightly by comparison, I would say. Um, If you are looking for a film with tidy politics that align with your own in a very comforting way, which a lot of people are nowadays, if TikTok is any indication, um, you might want to look elsewhere here. Because as you mentioned, the only person who truly loves him works at this circus uh, where he's Mm -hmm. depicted as truly happy. And he's ripped from that world by animal rights activists who are depicted here as kind of caring more about their posturing than the the animals themselves. Um, I have this thing against anthropomorphizing animals just as a general rule. I think it's arrogant and and sentimental and it's a failure of imagination to think that they think like we do. So I was really defensive going into this. But ultimately, I I came out of this feeling not manipulated. Mm -hmm. Instead, I had kind of my darkest and least generous thoughts about humanity confirmed. <laughs> that is not, it's not a pleasant experience, but man, it was a satisfying one. So yeah, that is EO. That's Poland's entry. It's streaming on the Criterion channel and available to rent on various platforms. Next up is Germany's entry, All Quiet on the Western Front. It's based on the novel by Eric Maria Remarque, and it's about a young German soldier in World War I whose patriotic zeal to fight for his country curdles into horror and desperation as he experiences the brutality of trench warfare. It is nominated for nine Oscars this year, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. It's directed by Edward Berger, and it represents the first time the novel has been adapted into a German-language film. You can watch it on Netflix. What do you think? <laughs> well, I have to admit, I remember reading the book and watching the 1930 film version in AP history class years, yep. years and years ago. You're still doing that, huh? Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really actually remember any of it while going into this film. You talked about being manipulated earlier. This Uh felt like it was trying to manipulate me in many ways. Uh, You know, obviously has a very timeless theme of war is traumatizing. It bludgeons you over the head with it. It bayonets you with that. It does all those things. But when I went back and after having watched the film, I did a little bit of research and I, I had a lot of questions that were answered in other people sort of breaking down the differences between this and the in the original book and movies that came before it. Mm-hmm. And the, my biggest issue with it was the fact that the way it ends is very different from the novel. Sorry if this is a spoiler. Go go away if you don't like this. But basically it ends with the main character, Paul, who we've been seeing all of this tragedy and misery through. It ends with him actually uh, dying literally minutes or seconds before the armistice is officially called uh, and goes into effect. And he's bayoneted. And it's like, really? This little <laughs> seconds? He, If he had just survived, he survived all this stuff and now to this point. And that doesn't happen in the book. The book mm-hmm. is there's like at least I think about a month or so before the war ends. And so that's the kind of thing that felt to me as though Berger was really trying to hammer this point home that he didn't need to do in that way because we already know and we already understand that war is terrible and especially World War One was a horrific war. Mm-hmm. And so it just felt to me as though this movie was trying to do too much. Um, and it also includes things that also weren't in the book, like the fact that we see the actual like commanders and people who are far away deciding all these things. Um, and it's, of course, supposed to say like, oh, look at all these people having giant feasts and rich and they they're totally disconnected from the actual brutalities of war it just felt to me 
too much. And I just could not get into this film, despite the fact that I think also there were some interesting moments. And in, in, as weird as it is to say, it is a beautiful movie about war, like just in terms of its uh, cinematography. But I, I just could not connect with this film. Yeah. I mean, I had a different reaction to those changes. And this is a rough sit. Uh, it's deliberately so. It's intentionally so. And, you know, we get a lot of war films uh, nominated for Oscars nowadays. And and I suspect that's the old guard of the Oscar membership kind of putting their thumb on the scale for this particular genre. But, you know, we had 1917 a couple years back. That was another World War One film. Uh, mm. I don't think this film is interested in the kind of same kind of cinematic spectacle that that film delivered. Because that film, the cinematographer was Roger Deakins, right? <laughs> and so right. that's imagery you really remember. That village being bombed at night with the yellow light and the smoke and those shots of farmhouses on the horizon. This, I thought, was much more interesting in keeping you down in the trenches, in the brutality, in the senselessness. I think if you wanted to say, you could say it's a more honest approach than 1917. But let's talk about its adapted screenplay nomination. I wouldn't be mad at it because I think the changes it makes to the book are big. It takes a big swing. We spend a lot of time with Paul and his friends in school at the beginning of the book where they're being indoctrinated by this virulent patriotic rhetoric spewed out by this one teacher. We get in this film one scene of that guy, one speech, that's it, that's all we need. In the book, Paul, the main character, leaves the front and goes to visit his dying motor, and that's when the book just takes a nosedive into the rankest sentimentality, and it's, ah, oh, my motor, how can I pot from you? Like, none of that is here. Instead, we get what, you, what you're talking about. We get all these scenes intercut with scenes of German politicians and German generals realizing they've lost the war, but not doing anything about it. I mean, for me, that raised the stakes in a very unsubtle way. But mm. we see politicians dithering. We see generals posturing. We see boys dying. It is not subtle. But the book is an anti-war screed. World War One was not subtle. So I gave it a point for verisimilitude. I guess. I don't know. I feel like the scenes with the officers and whatnot sort of deflated. Like, mm. they kind of took me out of that. And I didn't really need it. I will also say the other thing that I learned afterwards was that the book starts, like, Paul and his fellow soldiers, they join early on in the war. Like, uh -huh. it's maybe a year or two into the war. Whereas this happens and it opens in 1917. And I'm like, how are all of them buying into this jingoistic stuff so late into the war? Like, yeah. by this point, you have to know how terrible it is. So, yeah. I don't know. It just yeah. – <laughs> the choices to me didn't work and – the fact that it was nominated in so many categories, especially Best Picture, says to me that this feels like a product of the old guard voting this in yeah, because, yeah. Um, yeah, it just does feel kind of old school in a way that I didn't really love. All right. Well, we're going from old school to new school. That was All Quiet on the Western Front, the German entry, which you can watch on Netflix. Next up is Belgium's entry, Close. It's about two 13-year-old boys who share a very close bond that suffers under the scrutiny of their schoolmates, it won the Grand Prix at Cannes. It's directed by Lucas Dant. It's available to rent or buy on various platforms. What'd you make of this one? Oh, talk about another film that just kind of like guts you mm -hmm. <laughs> in the worst way. And it, it hit me in a ways that All Quiet didn't. And it, I feel like it was much closer to EO. Yeah. Um, I thought that the relationship between Leo and Remy, the two boys in the film, was so beautifully handled. And the film doesn't actually sort of tell you whether or not these characters are actually queer. It kind of lets you insinuate whether they might be or whether they're just boys who are really close. And I think that's crucial to this story working because I think it does help interrogate masculinity in a different way and, and say, like, it could be either way. And in, in, mm -hmm. in either way, it's, it's a lovely expression. The way they are showing affection for each other 
is a way that masculinity can be rendered and should be perhaps rendered in more ways uh, than we're used to. There's a, a beautiful moment where, well, beautiful, but also really sad moment where after the schoolmates have taunted them and questioned them about their closeness and whether or not they're together, they're laying outside with their friends. And Remy is on top of Leo, like his head is laying on Leo's stomach and then Leo kind of wakes up and he's like realizes oh yeah. everyone might you know this this isn't good it's subtle and it's and he's trying not to make a big deal out of it but just the way those moments shift and it's in those small quiet moments in this film that I think it really really just works so well and does a good job of taking this very kind of uh, conventional story we have now about queer characters or possibly queer characters mm -hmm. and I think makes it really really fascinating to look at especially since this is you know, set in, I think it's supposed to be set in the present day, more right. or less. But yeah, I was really moved by it and was not expecting to be. It walks a fine line between being overly sentimental and not. And I think that it does so successfully, in my opinion. Yeah, in my opinion, too. I mean, like, if I were to describe the plot of this film to somebody, not just melodrama, it's after school special, frankly. And mm -hmm. but as executed, it is pretty damn wrenching and it all comes down to those quiet moments you're talking about it comes down to directorial restraint and trust he trusts these very young actors uh the kid playing leo aiden dublin he's the one of the two boys that as you mentioned distances himself from his best friend because he senses this negative attention and you see him sensing it we just hold on his face and you see the doubt creeping into his expression and that works because this is a film about things that go unspoken so they don't make the mistake of having people speak about them, right? We we just hold on on Leo as as he struggles and and doesn't want to be seen to be struggling. And just how that kid holds his body. I mean, like, and then when these awful revelations come, the film is smart enough to know that humans don't immediately lead with empathy and understanding. We lead with shock and anger, right? And we let mm -hmm. the shock and anger happen. And we know that that stuff comes later if it comes at all. I, I agree. This this was wrenching in a good way. <laughs> um, so that is close. The Belgium entry. It is available to rent or buy on various platforms. Next up is The Quiet Girl. This is from Ireland. It is the first Irish language film to be nominated for an Oscar. It's about a young girl whose neglectful parents send her away for the summer to live with distant relatives on their farm in the countryside. It's written and directed by Colin Barade. It's in theaters now. What do you think? This movie definitely crept up on me. It took a little while for me to really lock into the story it was trying to tell. And I'm not sure if that is a feature or a bug, <laughs> but by the end of it, I was won over. There's one scene in particular between the character Sean, who is one of the uh, adults who takes in Kate. And he he basically comments on the fact that she is so quiet and doesn't say a lot and how she's kind of been teased and also neglected in many ways by her own parents for this very fact. And when he acknowledges this and he assures her that it's actually okay if she's quiet and like there is good that can come from just observing the world around you. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the moment where I was like, oh, I see where this is going. I see what this is getting at. And that's when I could really, really sink my teeth into the rest of the story. And I think the performances are lovely. And I think that, you know, this is another sort of downer in many ways. But I think that it also offers this sort of hope and optimism that I appreciated. And I imagine there are some people who will roll their eyes very heavily at the very last scene. Maybe you did, Glenn. I don't know. But, we'll see. We'll see. but you know what? It worked for me. By the end, I had a tear 
falling down my face um, <laughs> because it moved me and and I enjoyed it. Okay. And enjoyed is a, is, is a strong word. I was undone by it and okay. moved by it. Undone. Uh, <laughs> I got about 15 minutes into this and I was like, wait a minute. And then I remembered that this is based on a short story by Claire Keegan called Foster that became a novella that was first published in The New Yorker. And I read it in The New Yorker. And that story is told from the young girl's point of view. So there's a disconnect between how much she's like talking in her head and like describing things in her head and how little she actually says. That's kind of one of the things the story's about. Um, this film blissfully contains no narration at all. We're just watching this silent girl watch everything. You know, <laughs> she watches the stilted way that adults around her are talking to each other, like as if they want to be over to her head, but they're not. We watch herself arrive at this farm owned by these distant relatives and we're right there with her because we don't know what the hell's going on. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. And in a simpler, less good movie and, and story, this farm would be this perfect idyllic life. All it is is better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are chores. The woman on the couple is warm, but the man isn't, at least initially. There's this really crazily vindictive village gossip, which is how she learns something that the couple doesn't want her to know. But again, it's all trust and restraint. I remember the scene from the story where the woman and she go out to this well and she tastes this water. And you can tell just from the expression how cold and pure and fresh that water is and how she's never experienced anything like it in her life. And talk about the ending. The, the the story and the movie end exactly the same way. And I remember reading that story and having it land with tremendous weight. And I remember thinking, that is the perfect ending to a story. Yeah, I really thought this worked in a quiet, go figure kind of way. Yes. <laughs> that is The Quiet Girl. That is Ireland's entry. It's in theaters now. Finally, we got Argentina 1985, which, as you might guess, is an Argentinian film based on the true story, or as it says at the beginning of the film, it is inspired by true events of the legal team that prosecuted those responsible for the country's bloodiest military dictatorship. It's directed by Santiago Mitra, and it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. And once again, Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. What do you think? Well, out of all of the movies in this bunch, this is the one that screams capital M movie blockbuster. Like, sure. like I actually wrote in my notes, this kind of reminds me of a 90s courtroom drama, like the kind where Matthew McConaughey or like <laughs> yep. Tom Cruise in the American version would be the lead prosecutor and, and we'd be rooting for them from the beginning to the end. I appreciated some things about it. What I what I did like about it in particular was that it does have a sense of levity throughout mm -hmm. while Obviously, the circumstances and the stories that are being told, especially in the courtroom testimonies, are dire and agonizing and horrific. There are moments in the script that really allow for a little bit of playful humor, mm -hmm. The you know, the, especially the interactions between you know, Strasser and his family. And also there's a there's a kind of a running gag in the first in the early part of the film where he can't remember Moreno Ocampo's name, his his deputy prosecutor. There's moments like that that I, I think help not make it feel too bogged down by the sort of weightiness of the story. But I also think it does feel again kind of like a relic and a throwback not the kind that I particularly love. I, I can understand why voters would go for this, but it's not really my, my sensibility. There are a few times where I kind of was rolling my eyes mm -hmm. and it was like, especially a, a conversation with uh, someone who 
at one point was on the side of the oppressors and then suddenly switches sides after hearing the testimony. And yep. <laughs> I, th- I think to paraphrase, but the, the character is kind of like, well, now I know you were right. And I'm just like, yep. oh, this is that <laughs> this is that sort of green book ish mm. moment where the, you know, hearts and minds were changed after like a single testimony. And like, yep. this is this is not how things work. But it is enjoyable and I learned some things that I did not know before uh-huh. about this entire historical moment so that's a good thing that's a good thing um yeah this is straight down the middle man this is a very Hollywood courtroom drama it's a pot boiler it's a crowd pleaser um there has been speaking of the historical moment there has been a lot of writing about how much work that term inspired by true events is doing here <laughs> because yes. a lot has been simplified and elided to turn this head prosecutor guy into a kind of Atticus Finch figure I would recommend an article in Foreign Policy Magazine by Lucia Arce Arnsdorf called Argentinia's Junta Trial was about more than a few good men, which makes the point. Yes. <laughs> but I got to say, you know, I think largely because it hits all those cliched Hollywood beats, you, you got the wife who exists to say, I believe in you. And you've got the <laughs> hot-headed assistant with a zeal for justice and the, the whole trust no one because everyone is implicated. I mean, it's effective – Right. It's sometimes funny, as you mentioned, Mm. and it does leave you feeling better about the world than you did going in, which is not something I can say about (laughs) these other films, (laughs) which is why, even though All Quiet on the Western Front is heavily, heavily, heavily favored to win this category, I'm going to go with Argentina 1985. What about you? Mm. Yeah, I I was actually going to say the same thing. It it even has a line at one point where uh, Julio Strasser says to his wife, heroes don't exist. And she's like, perhaps they do. And she's like, like, you're a hero. (laughs) When your movie literally has the word hero in it and it calls the lead character a hero. Well, like, who doesn't want to root for that? Who doesn't want something that feels hopeful? And you're right. Out of all of these movies, this one definitely leaves you with the most uh, hope, even though it was set almost 40 years ago now. Mm. And um, I don't know if people from Argentina would necessarily say that it was quite that tidy, but (laughs) it's definitely a crowd pleaser in that 90s movie way. Yep. A few good men. So that is Argentina 1985 that is streaming on Amazon. Well, we want to know what you think about this year's Oscar-nominated international films. Find us at facebook.com slash pchh, and that brings us to the end of our show. Thanks so much for being here, Aisha. Thank you. We got through it. We did. We got through the bummers. <laughs> we want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so, so much for showing your support of NPR. If you haven't signed up yet and you want to show your support and listen to this show without any sponsor breaks at all, head over to plus.npr.org slash happyhour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Candace Lim and edited by Jessica Reed. Hello, come in. Provides our theme music, which you are drinking some ice cold well water to right now. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow for our big Oscars preview. We'll make some predictions for all the major categories. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business, it's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, and know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.